Please be seated. And if you have your scriptures, please keep your place at Luke 24. There's some more chairs up here. (laughs) This may not have been a good idea for the choir to come down. Let me confess something to you before I begin to preach this morning. I hate preaching on Easter. Let me tell you why. This between you and I. I I think it's kind of like when the president, the most powerful leader in all of the world, gives a speech on the direction of the country, say State of the Union address, and and gives bold and, you know, forward-looking visions, makes statements that that are, you know, deliberative and, and powerful. Then afterwards, you get these little beanheads coming on and telling you what he really said. Well, I kind of feel after Easter like a little beanhead that, you know, kind of telling you what really happened on Easter. Golly, nobody ought to be talking about, I mean, we just ought to sense what's going on in the scripture. But, but it's like this. It's tradition to have a preacher say something. And even if it's a little beanhead preacher, you know. And if we're getting somebody to run the church and I don't preach on Sunday morning, they're going to say, what are you doing? You know? So tolerate it. I'll make it as short as possible. Let's pray before I, before I get going though. Lord God, you are the preacher this morning. With your resurrection, with your body, with your powerful spirit. And so for all of the words that have been said, all of the songs that had been sung, push them all aside and the words that are about to be said in order with your spirit to speak to our spirits and erase everything that would not bring people to you, but use the words only as springboards directly into your arms. We pray in a powerful name. Of Jesus. Amen. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. You know, one of the habits of religion is to preserve things in the past that are very valuable. One of the great things about religion is to preserve things in the past that are very valuable. One of the worst things about religion is to preserve things in the past that are very valuable. The women went there that day to embalm a body. That is to keep something that they had known to be good, as good as it could be for as long as possible. That was their mission. That was their direction. And there is that in all of us that wants to keep something as good as it could be or go back to something when it was good. One of the reasons for that is it's a lot less work than going on and it's a lot less frightening than going on from where we are. I heard a story one time about a 
sniper in World War II and a, uh, a commanding officer went out to a field position and here this sniper shooting at everybody and he zigzagged and he went to the, to the uh, post and he told his man, get a fix on that man, locate him and knock him off. And the man said, well, we know where he is. He said, well, how long has he been there? And the man said, about six weeks. The commanding officer said, now, wait a minute. You know where this guy is. He's been there for six weeks and you haven't knocked him off. Why not? And the man said, very simply, because in six weeks, he hasn't hit a soul. (laughs) And we're afraid that if we knock him off, they're going to replace him with somebody that can shoot. (laughs) You know, there's something comfortable about a situation even when it's miserable if it is familiar and it's not hitting you too hard. And so all of us have this tendency to want to go back and embalm and somehow make something that is very dead last. Because it's frightening to go on. That was their mission. And what they found that day when they went back was that the the stone that would keep what was dead dead had been rolled away. And what was dead had come out of the tomb alive. And they were frightened and they were confused. The Bible says they were perplexed. They didn't know what to do. God's way is to not let us be confined to what I call fractional living. Do you know how many of us, just as a normal course, crawl into a little cubbyhole of reality and rot? just because it's what everybody else does? How many of us would voluntarily stick with something that's very, very dead because at least we're familiar with it and at least we have good memories with it and at least we've had good times with it? That's what the women went there to do, to stick with somebody who was very, very dead. But that's not God's way. You know, the first inkling of somebody who finds themselves in a dead marriage is to somehow go back to the good old days when it was alive. How many think you can do that? Folks, there's too too much water under the bridge. Too many hurts. So the thing to do is not to fix a marriage. The thing to do is to create a new marriage. Now, I'm not talking changing partners here. Everybody. No, 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 no. You're racing ahead. Jesus didn't come out of the tomb and say, Fuyo and Matthew and John and Peter. Hey, Harry, Susie, come here. I, want, I need some new disciples here. He was the new part. He was the changed one. 
And he was not, he looked, he got up in that tomb and said, man, these people are dead. I don't belong in here. How many, t- how many times have you looked around your life and said, boy, this is dead. I don't belong in here. Huh? Jesus rolled away the stone that would say, you have to stay there. Because that's the way things are. When your parents are raising your children. And they become a handful when they're teenagers. What's the first thing I hear? First thing, boy, I'd go back in a minute to the time when they were little and they, you could just, they, you didn't have to worry about them. Never mind the times that they were so sick they couldn't tell you what was wrong and you were worried sick about them. Never times that you know, threw up on everybody and they didn't have, <laughs> listen, it wasn't real pleasant back then. I mean, I know there are some baby people and there's some adult people, but it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. But you see, the habit is, when we get in a fix, when we find something threatening, when we don't know what's going to happen, we want to go back to fractional living. Let me crawl in that cubbyhole of time again and live there even if I rot. <laughs> no. No, Jesus says. I mean, you can crawl in the cubbyhole, but don't expect me to slam the door. You can crawl in the cubbyhole, but don't expect me to bless it. There's a whole new life. And it's not me that confines you. It's you if you're confined. There's a, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians I love. It's in 2 Corinthians 6. I love this phrase. I love this one verse. He's talking about Christians and he's talking about the paradoxes of Christianity. How they're poor, but they're, they have all things and, and they are dying, yet they have all life and so on and so forth. And he gets down. He's trying to convince other people of what radical new life they have. And he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 12, these words, you are not constrained by us. In other words, what we have is not what entombs you. You are not constrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. That is the only way that we ought to be satisfied with death is if we are the ones who are determined to die, who are determined to rot, who are determined not to go on just because it's risky and you don't know what's out there. The resurrection calls you out. The resurrection says, look, here's the second point. Don't be looking for me where you thought I was. Look at, look at the, and they found the stone rolled away and when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. And the women were terrified This is down in verse 5. And they bowed their faces to the ground and the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Second lesson. Not only are you called out of fractional living because Jesus wouldn't die. You are not to die. Not only are you called out of the little cubby hole of reality that would help you rot your life away, but you are called not to look back at where he used to be for you. Now that's troubling, isn't it? Because all of our life, our Christianity, or a good part of it, 
was a remembrance of what he did at one time. All of our personal life has been a remembrance of what he has done for us in the past, and that has been of great comfort for us, and that's okay. Deuteronomy 6 talks about telling your children about how he delivered the people out of Egypt and delivered them out of slavery and so on and so forth. And there is all through the Old Testament what's called a cultus. That is a repetition of what God has always done for us. Therefore, God is faithful. Well, God is faithful. Where does it go from there? <laughs> God has been there for you in the past. Where does it go from there? Is that where you need him right now in your past? No, no, no. T turn with me to 2 Kings. Those of you who have your Bible, I love this passage. This is about Elisha's being surrounded by an army and the servant that he has. Now I want you to identify with this servant. They're surrounded by the army. Verse 14, and he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Verse 15, now when the attendant, that's the servant of Elisha, of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, alas, that's, that's Hebrew for Oy vey, oy vey, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, don't fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, right here, the servant has to be saying, wow, I hope this guy never counts attendance in church. Because he hasn't got his numbers down. I hope this guy never keeps my books. Because, oh, I'm sorry, it's tax day tomorrow, isn't it? I didn't mean to bring that up. Talk about needing the Lord. I mean, it was. But he's saying, don't fear. Now, I want to ask you right now, is it going to be helpful to Elisha's manservant to say, Man, servant, I want you just to think about when you were a little boy and, and he was very near to you. Doesn't that make you feel better? I want you to think about the time that uh, you didn't quite have enough to eat and, and he sent you food. Doesn't that make you feel better? I want you to think about all the things that he's done for the people of Israel. Doesn't that make you feel better? And the answer is, well, yeah, but there's this matter of being surrounded right now. There's this matter of what are we going to do next? And when Jesus crawled out of that tomb, and when he wasn't in the past, but he was where he promised he would be, he was on the road to meet them. What he was saying was, look for me in your future. Don't keep looking for me in memories. That's not where you need me. You're facing a whole army right now. You're facing problems up past your eyes. Look for me there. 
because that's where I'm going to be. Look at what he, look at what, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do you really, really need to concentrate on what God has done in your past? Maybe you need to remember and maybe it'll give you good feelings, but where you really need God is in the future, where he'll be for you next. And that's what the resurrection is all about. Not being able to revisit who he was in part, but being able to have to face who he will be for you next. And one more word. When they told them this, I love this. The women come out and they remembered his words, his rhema. They remembered his words, his rhema, his words to them. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now skip down to verse 11. It says, and these words appeared to them, that is the disciples, as nonsense and they would not believe them. Now, in Greek, the verb tense of would not believe is imperfect. And the imperfect in Greek tense means it's something that doesn't just happen once. It is something that describes a continuous or repeated action. So I want you to be very careful in understanding the scriptures here. And I want to give you an insight as to what they were going through. These were people who knew all about the resurrection of Jesus. And looked forward to the resurrection of Jesus. He had told them about it. Why wouldn't they believe? Well, in the first place, it wasn't a, get out of here. You know, that's stupid. And they dispensed with the idea. It is an idea that grabbed a hold of them and wouldn't let go because it was too good to let go. They couldn't allow themselves right at first to believe it, but they couldn't get rid of it either. They had to keep disbelieving it for their own emotional protection, but they kept hoping it was true. Let me tell you, when I was a high school freshman, there was this girl who doesn't even measure up to the girl that I have now, is not even close to my dear wife, who is perfect and I love more than all the world. But for the sake of illustration, I was really hurting for illustrations this morning, honey. I had to use it. There was this girl. Well, first let me describe me. You think I'm short now. I was a toad when I was a freshman in high school. I mean, I had a burr haircut, played line in football. I mean, that was, I mean, that's not the popular position. I had two shirts to my name. I mean, I was a toad. And there was this girl who was a cheerleader who was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. And her name was Becky Whitney. One day at school... One of my buddies came up to me, and we were always goofing off. And he said, guess who likes you? I said, who? He said, Becky Whitney. I said, no way. Look, 
You think you're getting me on that? No way. I mean, you think, tell me a story I could at least fall for. That's so stupid. I can't even fall for it. No way. And I went down the hall. Guess what? I kept thinking, golly, even to hear those words. No way. No way. I can't. I can't. No, no way. No way in the world. I mean, golly. Then one of Becky Whitney's friends came up to me and said, guess who likes you? And I said, who? And she said, Becky Whitney. I said, he's got you in on this too. No way. No way I'm believing that. No way. And I went down the hall and I was going, no way, no way, no way. No way. See? Now, I can't describe to you. Look, Becky Whitney had everything going for her. She had, she was, she was the most popular girl ever. And, and I was, you know, my best friend. <clears throat> I mean, she, she ran with the ingrat. My best friend was a guy who was so poor that at one time he wore his mother's jeans that zipped on the side. I mean, I was, she had this wardrobe. I had two shirts. She had, uh, um, she was Presbyterian. I was Methodist. <clears throat> she had, she had heaven made from the very beginning. I had to decide for myself, you know, I mean, you know, she had everything going for her. I was a toad. She was gorgeous. No way. You see what the disciples are going through here? Can it be? No way, yes, I am the way. No way, yes, it is the way. You know what you have to believe in in order to comprehend Easter? You've got to let yourself believe in something that's too good to be true because it is true. You've got to believe that God does not have to repair what was, but can create something that is beyond and above anything that you can ask for or imagine. You've got to believe that when you pray, God can supernaturally transform your life. You've got to believe in things that are not at all reasonable, but very, very Easter-like. And I know that's difficult for all of us. There's part of us that wants to be able to gamble. There's part of us that has that spirit of risk. Do you know that 1988, Americans spent $208 billion on legalized gambling. This is just for legal gambling. The entire gross national product of Austria is $109 billion. We spent almost $100 billion dollars more on just legal gambling than, than the entire GNP of a country. So there's, there's that in us that really wants to believe, but there's also that in us that is so cautious that we, even when we have it, we can't believe in it. Do you know the percentages of people when they are just about to get married 
to the people that they love like crazy. The percentage of people surveyed who wonder if they're marrying the right person, 41%. It's not that they don't love them. It's just that there's this doubt in them that takes over. Six months after they get married, the percentage of people who wonder whether or not the marriage is going to last for the rest of their lives has jumped to 51%. Now here's the clincher. Is it because they are unhappy? Is it because they are dissatisfied? Is it because they have no evidence? No, because, pardon me, when those same people are interviewed as to the happiness of their marriage, 91% classify their marriages as very happy. You see, there's something in us that just can't believe in what we've been given, what we've got. Because it may be too good to be true. To be an Easter person, you've got to be able to say, it's too good to be true. Therefore, I believe it. It's too good to be true that for the rest of my life, I will have a living God in the future for me. Therefore, I believe it. It's too good to be true that he could make my entire life new and the life of my wife and the life of my children and the life of my family and the life of my church and the life of my business. All he could make new. It's too good to be true. but I believe it. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, the only reason that you're too good to be true is because we're too bad to be true. The only reason that we can't believe fully is because we have placed upon you our own undependability. Take it away, Lord. Both our inconsistency and mistaking you for us. We want to thank you this morning that you are God and we are not. And that your promises are greater than anything we can imagine. We want to thank you. And we want to take you at your word that you will never forsake or abandon us. Help us to count on that with our entire lives for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.